Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hey, it's John here. The podcast hasn't technically started yet. It'll be long in a minute, I promise. But before we get going, I just wanted to basically ask you all for a favor. You're all very nice people. You've all been listening to us uh, enthusiastically, I hope. So, so now I want something in return. I'm not going to ask for money, don't worry. What I would like, though, is... If you had five minutes to give us a nice review on iTunes and to tell your friends, because we'd like to get more people listening to this and we think you're the best people to help us do that. So, go on. Be nice. Do us a favour. Anyway, that's the public service announcement over. I now return you to your normal podcast. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John. And I'm Stephanie. This week we're talking about music in cities. 1st of October 2013, Guangzhou is the ninth biggest city in the world, an industrial town like Newcastle. Well, like Newcastle 50 years ago when everyone worked, according to our promoter. So it's, it's all change. This is, this is very new. It's a whole new person here. It's no, no, no more Barbara. Who's Barbara? Barbara's gone. Right. <laughs> So it's actually a bit harsh because she's still, as we record, sat upstairs tapping away. But she will, she will be gone shortly. So, 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 hi, Stephanie. How are you? I'm good, thank you, John. How are you? I'm all right. So, you ex- you excited? Your first, your first full episode. I am. I am excited. We're here. We we are in a city. We're going to talk about cities. We're it's in this very glamorous uh, basement studio, which is really more of a studio than a basement. I yeah, I would no, say I got that the wrong way around. It's really more of a basement than a studio. Is what I meant to say. Oh, don't it's, do it, John. It's, it's not. Like, it's not the worst. Oh, it kind of is the worst. It's fine. The smell isn't too bad today. Yeah, not with the door closed. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's your, your, your first full episode. We're all very excited, as are the, the, the listeners, I'm sure. So what, what do you want to talk about? Well, since we're doing music in cities, I was walking to work and thinking the most visible bit of music you come across in any city if you've not got your earphones in blocking out the modern world and other people as I think most of us who live in cities do almost all of the time and but if you're not doing that you come across buskers and people playing music out on the streets so I thought we could talk about that um are they a good thing for cities what's the story one of the characters that everyone in London was would be familiar with about 10 years ago now was there would be a guy who would get on the circle line with an accordion 
and the small child who would go around collecting money for him. But but hardly anyone gave the small child any money because people didn't really want their tube commute interrupted by an accordion player. So it was the saddest thing you'd ever seen. This kid would walk up and down the the, the tube with, a, with his hand out and then just look really sad at the ground. So. Are you, are you sure when you say 10 years ago, you don't mean in a Dickens novel I read the other day? Like, no, this literally used to happen. I don't beg a child. This is, this is <laughs> the problem. Sir. This is the problem with working with actual children. It's the, 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 that, that kid is probably about the same age as you are now, I think about it. But, you know, it's, it's, anyway, that's, that, that's the main sort of busker. All we have is I the remember. accordion kind, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously not, not all buskers have accordions. This so, this is true. Our yep. extensive research has revealed not all buskers have accordions. Yeah, actually, that's that's worth saying is that you have in fact done, but by my standards, pretty extensive research on on busking because I I just basically come in here and I get you know, busk. I busk it. Yeah. <laughs> so so you're, you're you're already putting me to shame by having actually looked some stuff up before we started recording. So what what can you tell us about the the world of busking? Well, the the most obvious thing and the reason that busking is relevant to talking about cities is that it is largely a city phenomenon. So busking has happened forever. People have always gone around and entertained people and asked for money in return. But where you've had a kind of culture of travelling bards, now that you have big mega cities, you don't have to travel to find punters because the footfall comes to you. So if you are going to be a busker, you want to be in a city... And actually, the topography of a city is a really big deal to a busker. As you know, you think about it for two minutes, you go, of course, you want to be somewhere quite central, where people are going to be walking past you, tourists are going to be walking past you. And what I've found is that, you know, every big city has its famous busking spots. So London, the obvious ones are Covent Garden, I guess, South Bank. Piccadilly Circus, probably. Yeah, the kind of big touristy areas. Um, but they're all over, so you know you've got New Orleans has a big busking scene. In Rome, it's the Piazza Navona. In France, Montmartre, uh, Market Square, in Krakow. So wherever you use your kind of big central tourist bodies. So basically, we're talking about pedestrianised spaces, right? Because there's no point to the busking alongside a main road. It's kind of areas where lots of people are going to be there on foot and lingering. Well, yeah, that is the case in Europe in particular, but what's interesting is around the world people use city architecture in very different ways. So actually I was reading in some parts of South America um, you get things called stoplight performers and what they do is when you stop at a red light in your car they do a little juggling act or whatever and then before the lights change they'll come around and take money from cars. So, so it's, it's like the people who clean your windscreen but with, with music. Yeah, or you know, juggling or clowning and things like that. Do you think that's fun or do you think that's really annoying? Because I think that can, I can see that going either way depending on, yeah, depending on your mood. Yeah, mostly. I'm quite curmudgeonly. So when I pass those kind of big performers in Covent Garden, I do hate it. But that's because I'm mean, which is why I live in London. Actually, I think there's probably... I'm wondering if there is a difference between the way locals respond to these things and the way tourists respond to these things. Yeah, that may well be true. You can, you can write in and tell us we're horrible people and... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, if you're if you're if you're actually trying to get somewhere, then often like you don't necessarily want to deal with like a crowd of people who stop to kind of watch a, a, a bit of performance art or whatever. But you know, if, if if it's part of your experience, part of the texture of a city, then then it's rather more fun. Are there buskers you like? Do you like kind of somebody on the tube with a violin or? 
But this is what I mean. This is why my mind went straight to the the, the accordion player. Like, <laughs> I I just kind of I feel myself kind of just cringing up inside, and it's just like you know, don't make eye contact, don't make eye. Contact. But that's you know, this this is the fact I'm I'm you know I live in a big city, compounding my already essentially miserableist personality and my sort of hatred for all, all humanity. To be blunt about it, and I don't know how how universal that is. Like, is that is that just me? Am I in fact a I don't know. I think I, I'm, there are biscuits I like and there are biscuits I definitely don't. There's a guy by the Financial Times offices um, under one of the bridges along the South Bank who plays Flight of the Bumblebee. Oh, I know that guy. He is great. No, I hate him. You hate him? Well, he just plays the same song all the time. I think variety is essential in a good busking pitch. Uh, just, yeah, I, I guess what I like about that is that it's it's not just a guitar or a ukulele like someone sat there with like a violin that's that's something that's actual novel. skill it's the novelty kind of, yeah. yeah although my boyfriend's favorite busker is a guy who sits outside h&m on oxford street with a traffic cone using it as a didgeridoo so maybe it's not about talent maybe it's about joy for life there used to be the most depressing busker you've ever seen in in cambridge about 15 years ago who'd stand there with a small keyboard and he'd just stare at the keys, playing hymns really slowly with a sign that said, Jesus saves sinners. This was in Cambridge. Are you sure it wasn't like an organ scholar who'd fallen on hard times? It might well it? have been. Like there was Also, there was a guy who worked in Pizza Hut who'd start telling you about how, how he'd gone to Cambridge and done a theology degree. And he was trying to make friends with all the students, but actually you, just, you didn't want to talk to this guy because you didn't want to catch it. Is this what awaits me at the end of my arts degree? Is is busking good for cities, do we think? Well, interestingly enough, somebody has written a book on this. Um, Susie J. Tannenbaum wrote a book called Underground Harmonies, Music and Politics in the Subways of New York. She she did a kind of sociological study, and she found that busking is kind of like real-life hold music. It does actually soothe people. Um, So her study found that in areas with regular busking, the crime rates go down. That's that's interesting. I suppose it fits with um, this. Have you heard of the eye on the streets theory? No. That's that's a, a, a bit of sort of um, sociology which argues that you know order is maintained not by like having a policeman every corner, but just having someone in every corner. Just the sense that you know you are part of a community because like you know hey, there's, guy, there's that guy busking over there, so therefore this is not a place to mug someone because like you know there are other people here. But but having having done some very quick googling while we've been recording this, there is there is also a theory that actually busking might work the other way and cause crime based on the, the broken windows theory. Do you know that one? I do know the broken windows. Yeah, theory. just like if it's a minor manifestation of like, hey, that guy's busking, therefore it's okay to break the law in some way. Therefore, I'm going to steal that old lady's bag. I don't. Might it also work in that if somebody plays Flight of the Bumblebee all day every day for two months, then someone's going to kill them. Yeah. Anyway, since anyway, since we're talking about music in cities, it occurs to me that uh, what we really need is some kind of musician. Well, it's funny you should mention that, John, because as it happens, I know a musician who has very kindly agreed to come and talk to us about music and cities. This is a Brooklyn-bound A Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A Express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. Hi, I'm Neil Codling. I'm keyboard player and guitarist in the band Suede. I also play uh, in Penguin Cafe, and uh, I'm here to talk about 
touring in cities. You're kind of still on tour. You're uh, yeah, I'm kind of dashed back to, to do this podcast and then I'm away again in a couple of, well, in about 40 hours. I'm away to France, was in Italy yesterday. So yeah, we're on a kind of festival tour of Europe. So I guess the obvious question is, you know, you're kind of doing five, six cities back to back. Milan yesterday, going away again on Friday. Do, do they all kind of blur into one? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a kind of odd life. It's kind of like a... Aside from that one hour when you're on, an hour and a half when you're on stage, apart from that one hour, it's a sales rep. You're on a method of transport and you're being kind of spat out into a hotel or down some arterial roads of a city and then onto stage. And that's the, that's the exciting part. I'm sort of imagining you see a lot of corridors and sort of, you know, walls made of breeze blocks behind stages and so that's on. That's it. A lot, a lot of places which are quite unglamorous for a glamorous industry, yeah. How do you remember who you are? Do you have the kind of note on the mirror that goes, you are in Bar- it's Thursday, you are in Barcelona? Absolutely. When we started kind of in the mid-90s, you'd have to write on a piece of paper where you were so that when you woke up in a hotel room, you could uh, remind yourself quite <laughs> where it was. Or you turn on the uh, hotel uh, TV and see what language mm-hmm. Simpsons was in. That was another key. <laughs> so, so everyone assumes this is because you've been out partying and taking a load of drugs, and really it's just because you've done so many cities, you have no idea where you yes, are. <laughs> absolutely. That kind of initial phase where it's parties all night, uh, that can only really last about between 6 and 18 months before a record company actually says look, you need to actually do some work here, otherwise this, <laughs> this is not going to work as a financial operation. <laughs> yeah, you kind of get used to this kind of strange world where you engage with a city for about an hour or two. You have an hour or two in the day that's yours, and the rest of the time you're kind of either sound-checking or resting or just travelling between between places. So, so you, you have to kind of cram your relationship uh, with a city into a very short space of time so it kind of if you if you post pictures of you on instagram in front of a, a city monument then that looks fantastic but it doesn't kind of show exactly what happens the rest of the day which is you kind of crying in front of a laptop because you can't get something to work <laughs> so in in those two hours how do you engage the city like you kind you... of it's quite it's quite bill bryson-esque i suppose you kind of um, get a map from the hotel and you go somewhere within walking distance and you just try to engage with so uh, you, you pick the nearest place of interest the cultural place in back when we when you started your kind of engagement with the city was much more of a, a kind of a nighttime thing you'd do the show and then you'd be out hitting the bars and seeing the nightlife it's much more cultural wise you're you're much more part of the day these days you're kind of looking at churches and art galleries and you're kind of engaging that way so you pick a place that's near within walking distance or a quick cab ride from the hotel and you go and see that and you have three quarters of an hour there and then you're back and then you have to be somewhere else you kind of have to fake your relationship with the city in some way in that you kind of have to extrapolate from this very brief engagement some kind of relationship you over the course of um of, of the years, you can build up a, um, an idea of a city, but uh, the first time you kind of see these places, it's very in and out. 
Do you ever forget you've been somewhere, so you'll kind of rock up and go, oh my God, I was actually here 10 years ago, and I have no... Yeah, absolutely. Um, Cass from the Penguins. The mother of his child, they met um, somewhere in Europe, and um, she asked him, have you ever been to Finland? And he went, no, I haven't actually, and he'd actually been twice. He'd worked, back. <laughs> he'd worked out later that he'd been to Helsinki twice and kind of just plain forgotten. Maybe to give us a sense, you've, I was going to say kindly, but we've, we've not seen them yet. It can be a bit of an unknown. But you've brought along some of your tour diaries. When we made the last record, I kind of kept a journal uh, to see what the writing process was like, whether it changed between uh, one record and the next. And it just reminds you how much of a slog it is, so I kind of stopped. But uh, along, uh, alongside that, we were kind of touring as well. So here are some kind of excerpts of us when we were in the Far East. 1st of October 2013, Guangzhou is the ninth biggest city in the world, an industrial town like Newcastle, well, like Newcastle 50 years ago when everyone worked, according to our promoter. The notepad by the bed in our room says, leave a trail of genius. The gig is in the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall. It's the last rock gig there because they're worried the roof might collapse from the noise. It's a beautiful all-seater hall. The seated crowd surged to the front during the encore, but Brett is expressly forbidden from making any kind of physical contact with the audience. 2nd of October, we catch a plane to Chengdu. An air hostess offers Brett a jar of black paste with his meal. What is it? he asks. I don't know, she says. Engine grease? he asks. We land in a pea super of lunchtime smog. There's no 14th floor in the hotel. Aren't they one out? In my room, a card by the bed says, value your life and refuse drugs. Wise words indeed. 6th of October, Beijing. Last time we went to leave Beijing, we ended up at the wrong terminal. Our driver tailgates at 70 miles per hour all the way, switching multiple lanes in tight, death-defying manoeuvres. It's a miracle we make it to any terminal at all. When we were in, arrive in Nagoya, Matt and I both tweet a picture of our friend and promoter, Yudai, with a bootleg t-shirt seller outside the Beijing gig. Sold without irony, it features the suede logo under a picture of late 90s Oasis. <laughs> Tenth of October, we catch the Nozomi Super Express to Tokyo. It's late, a remarkable thing in Japan, but inevitably it hurtles across the country and makes up the time. The Beatles stayed at this hotel in the 60s, and Maka is due back here later this month. It used to be quite 70s looking, but it's been done up since we were last here. Our departure to the venue is delayed as the entire hotel staff turn out to welcome Placido Domingo upon his arrival from Beijing. He has a show here on Saturday. It's a historic day in the opera world as it would have been Verdi's 200th birthday.
one thing that really strikes you listening to that that maybe you wouldn't think of if you've not had this experience of touring is what's permissible in different cultures and how you have to integrate that as a band. I mean, talking about Brett can't go near the audience in certain places, whereas... Absolutely, and there are certain songs that you can't play. You have to watch what you wear on stage, and kind of. So you do have to kind of remember all these things because kind of promoters, local promoters, tend to assume that you know. We often play places in the Far East that not a lot of rock bands go to. You know, it's kind of like I remember when we started playing China. It was kind of like us and Elton John, and the kind of difference between those two shows were kind of a lot <laughs> more kind of. Ragged and brazen than uh, Elton John is. So it's it kind of, you do have to kind of do your research for these kind of, of things. You build up this kind of uh, an odd picture of the world of, of cultural things that only really apply to what you do. But it's kind of interesting how it all knits together. What are the songs that you're not allowed to to play in certain well, places? It's, it's, well, we some of our edgier lyrics. Uh, you do have to kind of provide uh, the, your lyrics to kind of the. Ministry of Culture, certain kind of places, and they kind of say, well, you can't really have that one. So when we played uh, Shanghai a few years ago, we weren't allowed to play Beautiful Ones, which is kind of one of our bigger songs. What, what is, is dodgy about that song? I'm now running through the lyrics in my head and going, what is it? I think because it mentions suicide. And there's some um. drugs cracked up, smacked up, 22. So... I, th- I just, I mean, you can't have to make assumptions. You can't kind of sit over these people's shoulders. It's the Ministry of Culture or wherever kind of says that it's actually it's quite corrupting to use. I kind of have to watch what I say. You know? <laughs> it's like we, we we have to kind of go back and um, we're going to China next week. In about thirty days, I'll be back there, so <laughs> have to be careful. It, it would be pretty bad if we got swayed arrested. That would not be. Yeah, we're, so I'll come back. That's not one of my ambitions. <laughs> Depending on who you ask, it's either a pretty shitty city or the unofficial capital of Wales. Swansea, as its Welsh name Abertawe tells you, is the city where the Tower River meets the Bristol Channel. That's been a vital link in its history. In the mid-19th century, Swansea's docks exported around 60% of the entire world's copper, earning it the very creative nickname Copperopolis. With plenty of coal and limestone nearby and easy links to copper across the water, Swansea for a while had industrial revolution life all sorted out. But big infrastructure developments in Cardiff in the 19th century meant it overtook Swansea in population and economy, spawning a bit of a rivalry. In the middle of that slow decline, Swansea's still important infrastructure was hit by a particularly intensive Blitzkrieg bombing campaign. Over three nights in February 1941, Luftwaffe bombs killed 230 people and damaged 11,000 buildings, flattening the town centre. Rebuilding it a mile away from its original location started in typical 1950s style. As one historian put it, much of the result is regarded with high favour by neither residents nor visitors. And not much has changed since. Swansea got city status in 1969 and got its first shopping centre a decade later. There was a marina and a new county hall in 82. 
But it wasn't until 1994 they unveiled plans for the real big one, the Castle Keys development. It was going to cost between a hundred million or a billion pounds. It doesn't really matter which, because in 2004 investment dried up and they scrapped the whole thing. Attempt number two came in 2008 when a developer was appointed to lead a billion pound regeneration programme for the city centre. In 2013 they pulled out citing little progress. But last year they announced big regeneration plan number three, half a billion pounds into the city centre. That's on top of ambitious plans for a huge tidal power development in the bay, on which, for now at least, we'll have to wait and see. And that's ignoring some big developments that have actually been built and opened. The first phase of Swansea University's 450 million Bay Campus project opened last September, and there's been some surprisingly uncontroversial gentrification of the old docks. But it definitely still doesn't compare that favourably to other blitzed cities like Plymouth. And uh, Cardiff is still a touchy subject. It's undebatable on this side of the M4 that Cardiff gets all the funding, so you get the impression Swansea sometimes would like to copy that. They say that's where the idea for Swansea's bendy buses came from. That turned out to be a spectacularly bad move. The company running the buses pulled out because it was too expensive, and the £10 million road layout changes have just had to be changed back after serious design issues were blamed for two separate fatal accidents in two years. If that wasn't enough, businesses said the roadworks hit trade more than the recession. The football rivalry has at least died down a bit following Swansea's universally recognised and undebatable recent superiority, at least in part helped by the council's investment into a new stadium ten years ago. Outside of football, the fierce competition over the title of wettest city in the UK has just been snatched back by Cardiff with just a few millimetres in it, but Swansea will always have the bragging rights of having the tallest building in Wales and being the first city in Wales to have its own monopoly board. So there's at least a few things to be positive about, and if you completely ignore Brexit and the closure of Put Albert Steelworks down the road, you could almost be optimistic. If you didn't enjoy any of what I was just talking about, you can hear me talking about completely different things on the Well Thanks podcast. You can get to that at wellthanks.co.uk. You can also follow me on Twitter at Stefan Storch. Thanks to Stefan for that. I'm keen to keep doing this slot, but I'm aware it's a bit British-centric sometimes. We've done several English cities, we've done Glasgow and Scotland, we've just been to Wales. We're keen to hear more from cities around the world. I can see on the, the stats of who's listening to this podcast that, you know, you're all over the shop, you guys. We've got, it's quite exciting, actually, you sort of look at the list of... So you look how many people are in China or whatever, Vietnam listening to this. I'm babbling now. But anyway, the point is, if you're out there somewhere a very long way from London, in the city, interested in cities, you want to tell us about it, get in touch, because I'd really like to hear about some places a lot further from home. Anyway, it's time we heard more from our musical guest, I think. Back to Neil. So uh, something I'm interested in is, is kind of the, the sort of infrastructure for the music industry in the city and yes. how that's, that's changed with the kind of changes in the economics of the industry. I mean, are there, are there fewer venues? Are there fewer recording studios? You've, you've been in the business like a, 
a quarter of a century? Like, how's it changed? Well, definitely in terms of, for instance, in London, I think the changes over the last 10, 15 years have been huge in terms of smaller venues. It's kind of partly to do with kind of musicians' union kind of rules about what constitutes a, a band and how many people can play without uh, smaller venues needing a license. Those rules have re- recently been changed, but uh, as they were in place for a while, it, it meant that um, people were reluctant to put on um, bands in pubs. So that kind of grassroots infrastructure kind of died away to some extent. So a, 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 a large number of smaller venues had kind of fallen by the way. There's even kind of prestigious places like that you'd get in, like in Kentish Town and Bullen Gate. These places kind of would be able to make more money out of you know, being a gastro pub than being a, uh, a venue. So you see that happening a lot. Same thing with, with studios. The, the real estate value of studios means that a lot of places got sold off. Studios even as big as uh, like uh, Olympic, Psalm in West London, these places being sold off because they're worth so much more mm. as, um, as, as real estate than uh, what it would be for, to have a band in there. And of course, because bands, because of um, Spotify streaming services, um, uh, the bands really don't have the money to spend in big studios. So they kind of tend to spend um, their money in smaller studios and do a lot of their work in, in kind of a basement and home studios. So a lot of those kind of mid-sized studios, I think if we kind of count out what Suede used to, where Suede used to record in the 90s, a lot of those places just don't exist. Master Rock, where we made our first three or four albums um, in Kilburn, doesn't exist anymore. Protocol, Olympic, they just don't exist anymore. It's only really the kind of high-end studios like Abbey Road and Air, even Air's under threat at the moment. Those small, quirky analogue studios with this kind of quirky gear, those, those are doing all right. But the rest of the industry has been, in terms of studios, been eviscerated. Do you notice a difference in sort of the texture of the music scene as a result of that? You know, is, does it feel different to be a band in London right now? Or? Yes, definitely. Because I guess you're kind of at a position with both of the projects you're in where you're quite established, but you must run into people who are, who are not lucky in terms of where they're at in their career who are kind of starting out now yeah we were we were very lucky in terms of when we when we started i think suede formed in the in the late 80s when indie music was just coming into its own and was able to the band was able to kind of establish that kind of make that big leap from indie to kind of when indie became a thing so what happened in the mid 90s and that kind of explosion when guitar bands became cool again and um I, I think if you're starting out now, it, it would be very difficult. Like, like in all industries, I think you need money from external sources to be able to um, to make a living from it. You know, it's like <clears throat> bands used to tour to uh, promote records. Now they make records to promote tours. And unless you can make records, you can't uh, have big selling tours. So it's very chicken and the egg. It's kind of very difficult to get that foothold, to get a hit record in order to kind of to create a tour. So the income stream it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's no revenue from streaming music at all. So it's very difficult. How's, how's the music scene moved on geographically? Because there is always this talk of, of the hollowing out of London because property prices are so high that you can't yeah. just come and be arty for a few years. You need to be a corporate lawyer or something. No, absolutely. So does that, does that mean, has that livened up other cities? Right. Um, I, th- I think so, yes, but, um, but not to the extent that you'd actually, um, that, that those bands would cross over into uh, mainstream success. So there are very healthy scenes in, um, in cities in Europe and more indie side of uh, American cities with um, festivals like South by Southwest and um, places in Australia, Melbourne and Perth and places. There's a, there's a burgeoning scene there, but you tend not to, to, to hear about that because, again, making that step up for bands, it's, it's very difficult. To, to make money for band, I think uh, it's easier when your expenditure is a laptop and time, which is basically what dance music is, you know, and uh, four on the floor and um, a trance and house. It's a, a lot easier to make to make music and to make money that way. And I guess it is interesting in that the type of, you know, radical new music that's coming out of London in the past 10 years, so you've got actress, you've got kind of grime music, is yeah. all that kind of music, right? It's yeah. East India youth can sit in his room in East India with a laptop and just bang Absolutely. out an album. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, that's the way records are made these days. It's, there's not a lot of money to invest, but it's, t- it's time. And where people have got time, 20, 30 years ago, you got that time by being on the dole. But where people find it nowadays, I don't, I don't know. But it, once you've um, spent money on the laptop, then it's just time investment. And so, which is great because it does mean that the talented people, kind of, those are the ones that get to be heard because you cannot keep that talent down and you do get to hear. Um, the, the, the urban scene in London is fantastic. So get hold of a laptop, get to your bedroom, and in 20 years your name could be under a picture of Oasis on a T-shirt. In- <laughs> <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in China, absolutely. Go for it. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. 
So you've spent a lot of time in, in Brussels. Were you in Brussels watching the news cycle recently? We, we, we were in Brussels uh, a, a few days ago. It's very odd. We, over the last few years, our last two records were made in Brussels at ICP Studios. So we kind of got a great affinity for the place as you drive from the um, uh, Eurostar terminal to our studio. You go past the European Commission. You kind of get to know the place a bit and you don't see it as this uh, forbidding other city where these great decisions are made. And you find that, that kind of the Lieber's attitude to Brussels quite mystifying. It's an administrative centre. There's no kind of great big sinister dealings going on. There's nothing Machiavellian, it's not just kind at, of... Not at all. It's just, it's... There is the statue of the little boy having a wee. I mean, that's a bit weird. The mannequin. Yeah, the mannequin. You'd, you'd have to cast out all of Barcelona if you're going to take issues with kind of scatological <laughs> child <laughs> statues. <laughs> Maybe, maybe this is actually a gap in our national culture that we don't really have enough statues. Of well, on that fourth plinth, there, yeah. you go. Well, there you go. That's it. Okay. That's what yeah. we're just, that's, that's why. Yeah. If only we just had that, we would have voted Remain. Yeah. yeah. So, do you now have on your, you know, post it note on the mirror that goes, Today is Thursday, you are in Denmark, the Prime Minister is Theresa May. So yes. Can... <laughs> that's what you have to do in yeah. our post Brexit world. <laughs> I should say, if you're not already following Neil on Twitter, you should, because you get these beautiful photographs of kind of just fly-by shots of churches and places mm. and cities, and you can make yourself tremendously jealous in your desk job, just looking at where he is at any point. Yeah, would I also just be on... I'm on the wrong um, social network. I should just be on Instagram. You should just be on Instagram. <laughs> or then you should, you know, post more pictures of the back of recording studios. And well, it's funny you should say that. I think there's, the, uh, there's that Jim Jarmusch... Uh, film Mystery Train um, where there's this Japanese couple travelling around and uh, in a hotel room a guy keeps taking Polaroids at like the corners of rooms and uh, bits of the bed and stuff and, and, uh, uh, and his partner says why, why are you taking pictures of that and not these fantastic places that we, we're looking at and he says well I'll always remember those it's the kind of the bits of hotel rooms <laughs> that kind of all turn mesh into one and I need to be reminded of those Reminds me of that story a couple of years ago, that American guy who'd gone around filming his whole world tour, but oriented the camera the wrong way round. <laughs> so it was this lengthy video of him, and just his head with like there's some wall behind yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> with him going, look at this. <laughs> Going back to busking, we actually did a bit of a shout-out on Twitter and asked you to send in your favourite stories of buskers around the world, and specifically weird or unusual buskers, and we're going to read out some of your replies. This is a good one. There was a busker in Leicester Square in 2005 playing Speed Country, brackets, dueling banjo style, close brackets, while a man in a full-body chicken suit did a hoedown dance. I don't think that they knew each other. That, that's, from, that's from Alex Hearn, later this parish. We have from Ant Breach, my sister travelled through Slovenia and in every single village there was one old man playing the Godfather tune on accordion. Do you think it's the same? Is it, is it one old same. man, one per, per village? Or 
Was she being followed by? I accordion busking is clearly a whole world that has been un- unexplored. This is a good one from, from Rob Haynes. I have fond memories of Bongo Mike and extremely Frank Jeremy, who used to busk the district line in the 80s. Standout song of theirs was, If you can't have a shave in the toilet, where can you have a shave? Lesson there for all of us, I think. I think there's, there's got to be a story behind those names, right? I can't. I mean, you hope so. If there isn't a story there, then like... <laughs> The Kirkdale Bookshop says, I saw a guy singing and hitting a lamppost with a spoon in Lisbon. I'm afraid it wasn't very good. <laughs> Pippa Lothorpe writes in and says, Once I sat with some buskers, a man came over, took their guitar and sang an improvised song about Wonderwall. It was bizarre. I was sitting with them and asked them to play Wonderwall as a joke. This guy asked for the guitar and sang something like, I ain't gonna sing it. I don't fucking know it. I don't give a ball about Wonderwall. It was amazing and so catchy. Jen Ashworth writes, There used to be a busker in Cambridge who wore a paper mache top hat with white mice, brackets, live, crawling around the rim. Apparently there's a a Polish beatboxer in a Spider-Man outfit who's been banned from Newcastle City Council. Lewis Greener writes in, We would love to hear more about him if anyone knows. I'm slightly scared to hear more about him, I have to say. The other thing, of course, is famous buskers. So Colin Graham tells us that Joshua Bell is often seen busking in DC Metro Station playing Bach, and there are videos of this on YouTube. For years, there was a guy at Hoban Tube in a Sylvester the Cat costume who played trumpet, only ever played part-time lover. <laughs> um, Kevin says, I'm sure they're a madder... He is right. But in Warrington, we have a guy that repeatedly plays the men behaving badly theme on the sax. I, what is the men behaving badly theme? Do you know that? I, I do, but there's really no way of communicating it without singing. It's, it doesn't have any words, but you can't, you can't tell this because it's radio, but Stephanie just nodded at me in the most terrifying way I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I'm going a bit fast because I want this over with. But that's that's basically. I think it was. I think it was saxophone based. So before we go, I need to know one thing. What's your favourite map? Am I allowed to pick a genre of maps? You can pick whatever. You can answer that in any way you want. Well, Barbara's answer last week was basically, I hate maps and I've been hiding it for the last two years. So it can't possibly, can't possibly be as disappointing as that. Well, I don't hate maps, but I think, I think you'll actually be pleased to know my favourite type of map is the public transport map that bears no or little correlation to real world topography. Okay, and why, why, why do you love that map? I like to follow coloured lines and not have to pay attention to landmarks. So I don't care where your metro is. I'll happily trot on board with my little map. You know, I think you're going to fit right in. You've been listening to Skylines, the Citymetric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Stephanie Boland and produced by Royfield Brown. You can contact all three of us on Twitter where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. Our theme music was Waves by CORTR. You also heard We Are One by Vixento. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast, on iTunes, or in the podcatcher of your choice. You can also find two more shows by Eric's and colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps, and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. And since you've listened this far, leave us a nice review on iTunes, eh? Go on. We love you for it. Thanks for listening. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train.
The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동. 여행 For free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The next stop is Grand Street. 